To be a wordsmith is defined as a person who writes, an author, a journalist, a person who commits their thoughts to paper. But I believe it is so much more. The ability to craft a story, to change lives, transport the ordinary life to an extraordinary place, to put words on paper and awaken the imagination in ways that the reader never dreamed possible. Yes, to have the ability to see what isn't there and make you see it too. To awaken the senses in new and amazing ways like feeling a cool breeze on a hot summer day on your cheek. To smell wildflowers as they bloom. To taste a delicacy on foreign soil. To feel like you've never felt before. Touching places long forgotten. Connecting your soul in new ways. That's what writers do. It's my pleasure to host Carolina Writers Speak, a new podcast, a chance to hear actual writers' voices, hear what inspires them, experience their trials and their struggles, and realize that we all have a story and it's worth telling. Good morning. This is Rose Cushing with Carolina Writers Speak, and our guest today is Donna Everhart, and she has a new book, The Saints of Swallow Hill. So, Donna, welcome to the show. Thank you. And tell us a little bit about you. Well, I was born in Raleigh, so I am a North Carolinian through and through. I now live in Dunn, which is about, you know, depending on traffic, about 40 minutes south of Raleigh, sandwiched in between Fayetteville and Raleigh. A lot of people haven't heard of the little town of Dunn. Um, I've been here for about 25 years, and I love it. Small town atmosphere and all that good stuff. I worked in, a lot of people want to know, well, have you always been a writer? And I haven't. And so I used to work uh, in information technology, and I did that for about 35 years before I started writing full-time. That's a, a big, wide-open field, so uh, like, pretty smart lady there. <laughs> so tell well, I enjoyed the job when I had it, but the company went bankrupt, and um, that's when I took the opportunity to start writing. Okay. Well, The, the Saints of Swallow Hill is not your first book, is it? No, it isn't. It's my fifth book, wow. actually. Well, tell us a little bit about some of the books that you've written, and then we'll get to the new one. Okay. Uh, so I acquired my agent back in March of 2012, so I've been with him going on 11 years now. And what was interesting about that is I had um, left my company in March of 2012, about three weeks after I signed with him, so it all kind of seemed to be like it was meant to be kind yeah. of thing. and uh, But he didn't sell the book for like three years. And so I did something called panic writing, right. <laughs> which means that if you've only ever written one book, it's like, can I do this again? And so I wrote another book, and that ended up being my sophomore book. But my debut was The Education of Dixie Dupree. It's set in Alabama in 1969. It's a rough story. It's very graphically written and deals with some tough social issue topics, uh -huh. but it did really well. And then my second book is The Road to Bittersweet, 
And that's a story of a family caught up in the 1940 flood of western North Carolina set in Jackson County. And that one got a Southeastern Library Association Award in fiction for the year 2018. And my third book is The Forgiving Kind, set in 1955, North Carolina, in Jones County, and deals with a 12-year-old girl who knows how to douse for water. She kind of has a special talent. Right. And she's growing up on a cotton field or on, you know, a cotton farm. And that deals with a lot of the same kind of things, social issues of the day. Fourth book is The Moonshiner's Daughter, set in Wilkes County in 1960. And that deals with um, the legacy of moonshining that 16-year-old Jesse Sasser is born into. And she doesn't want to have anything to do with it because she's pretty sure it, it killed her mother. And that leads us up to The Saints of Swallow Hill. So tell us a little bit about that book. This book um, ended up being very different from my first four books in that it's it's written differently. So the first four are written in first-person point of view, and they're all considered coming-of-age stories, although they are adult fiction because of the heavy topics that those books deal with. And I decided with The Saints of Swallow Hill I wanted to do something a little different and so I wrote that one from third-person point of view, and I've got two main characters. The chapters swap off between these two main char characters, which one is a male character and the other one is female. And this book is set during the Depression era, and the comp books that were used, the comparable books that were used uh, to market it, are Where the Crawdads Sing, and that's basically just because of the turpentine setting and the the information about the trees and the environment and things like that, and also the fact that it's Southern fiction. And then the other comp book was The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna, and that's because her book was set during the Depression era as well and dealt with migrant uh, workers. And, I mean, they really, you know, it's kind of a different opinion maybe or a different view of the migrant workers that were in that book and the fact that they were... Um, from Oklahoma called Okies, and they went to California, you know, to try to work. In the Saints of Swallow Hill, it's an unusual setting, one that many people have not heard about. It's a turpentine labor camp, but they were prevalent throughout the South. Uh -huh. And actually, North Carolina's nickname, Tar Heel, came from this industry, which we were number one in the world as a producer for it from the mid-1700s until, like, late 1800s and that's simply the extraction of the pine resin out of the longleaf pine tree and that is distilled into products of tar pitch and turpentine and the tar and the pitch were used to waterproof the old wooden sail ships um, but the Tar Heel name came from that industry and when I landed on the term naval stores it just opened up that whole world to me and I decided to set the book in the Depression era because those camps existed for a long time, like all the way up through. Probably there were a few still there in 1980s, and there may even still be some old-fashioned ones out there today. But um, it was an industry that sort of consumed the southeast, the areas that had the longleaf pine trees. 
And it's it's a story of those two individuals and life-altering circumstances um, that compelled them to go to work in this brutal turpentine camp down in Georgia called Swallow Hill. That's really interesting. I knew North Carolina had a long history of, you know, turpentine and tar production, but I didn't know about the camps. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a fascinating book to read. Well, it has done exceptionally well. It um, is now my best-selling book of all time, and I, I'm, it's been out a year, and I still get emails from individuals who have read it. And the thing that was so cool about this, I learned so much. Uh, and honestly, I ended up putting together a slide package so when I do events, I can show the history behind the story and open people's eyes up to the fact that what you read in the book is based on a lot of actual fact. So, for instance, and I won't do any spoilers when I talk about some of these things, but there was... Um, a way that they would punish the workers. So so any of these workers that were in these turpentine camps, it was under what they call a debt peonage system. And the debt peonage system, for those that aren't familiar with it, simply means, just like any other labor camp that might have been out there, there were coal labor camps, there were lumber uh, labor camps, and they were all set up similarly to the t- turpentine camp. And that dealt with uh, commissary, and so they were like self-contained little cities where you had housing, and some of it was pretty squalid. And you had a commissary on site, a church, a school, things like that. But the commissary would overcharge, and so the workers that ended up in these camps were always caught up in perpetual debt because they could never work long enough or hard enough to get themselves out of debt to the company. And if they didn't meet their quota for the day, sometimes various punishments were used. And one of these was called a sweat box. And some are probably familiar with what that means, but it's essentially locking someone up inside something that's equivalent to like a coffin and leaving them out there in the sun. So these things are introduced in the book. So it, it's, you know, it's, I don't write sweet little stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I like to write about life, you know, and what has happened in our past. And so, yeah, well, <laughs> kind of a tough story, too. One of my favorite sayings is that you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> a lot of truth to that. So you're a New York Times, or excuse me, USA best-selling author, USA Today? Yes. Yes, that's right. Tell us a little bit about your writing process and, you know, kind of share some secrets with us about how to how to get on that track. Okay. Um, well, I do a lot of reading, and I, my whole writing career ended up, I sort of, I don't want to say I meandered into it, (laughs) but I was not the type of writer that started off when I was a young child knowing that I wanted to write. I was first and foremost a reader, and I believe reading can be one of the biggest helps or or the best education for a writer, and particularly depending on what you want to write, this is to me key. 
depending on what you want to write, that's what you should be reading. And I have to believe that's almost a natural occurrence, maybe with most writers. Uh-huh. If you want to write like Stephen King, well, write, read Stephen King or, or any other, you know, Dean Koontz or any, anything like that. If you want to write suspense mystery, well, that's probably what you should be reading. And so for me, I was reading a lot of different things along the way as I grew up and, um, you know, carried on with my life, working, getting married, and, you know, things like that. But probably sometime in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, I had been reading a lot of Stephen King, speaking of Stephen King, and I landed, I don't know what made me shift away, it might have been, you know, he was starting to write some kind of crazy stuff, but I started looking for something else, and I cannot tell you, and I wished I could remember this, but I landed on Southern Fiction. The very first book I ever read that was Southern Fiction was by a writer named Kay Gibbons. Are you familiar with her work? Just a little. By chance? Okay. She's a Raleigh you know, she, she, I can't recall where she was born, but she lives in Raleigh now. She's not really writing right now that I know of. I wish she would. Um, but I read Ellen Foster, and that just launched me into this idea. I mean, I, I, it was kind of just where I questioned myself. You know, it's like I love reading. I wonder if I could write like this. I would love to write like this. Can I write? Should I write? You know, just questions. And I started trying to cobble together a manuscript back in, like I said, the early 90s after I had read that. And then I was on the hunt and search for any kind of Southern fiction. I read Dorothy Allison, Bastard Out of Carolina. I started reading some of the old classics, you know, William Faulkner, John Steinbeck, you know, all of these other writers that were maybe not necessarily all of them weren't considered Southern fiction writers, but I was just learning. Right. And I just kept searching for more Southern writers. I mean, I would go into the bookstores, wherever I could find any, you know, show, point me to your Southern fiction section kind of thing. Um, and I, it, that just lit a fire under me. That was probably the first time I got serious about it. And anyway... I ended up, um, that little manuscript that I was sort of cobbling together, it sat on my laptop. I had about 85 pages of it, and it sat on my laptop for, I want to say, decades. But that did become the education of Dixie Dupree. And I would say that as far as my writing process, one of the things that people talk about the most often is getting stuck. And to me, getting stuck in while you're writing, if you're in the middle of it, if you're at the beginning of it, which I, I truly believe there's two things that are the hardest thing for a writer, but let me, I'll get to this point first. If you're stuck, the only way that I have ever found that I get unstuck, I mean, it's going to be nothing new, nothing, you know, whoa, I've never heard this. Everybody's heard this. Right. You either sit there and get into your manuscript, you know, and if you have sat there for a long, long time, this could be hours, it could be days, it could be weeks, <laughs> you know, you do take a break from it. I've, I've had it, I've become unstuck in many different ways. I've become unstuck because I sat there. 
I've become unstuck because I walked away from it and gave my mind the freedom to just relax. I've become unstuck when I have picked up another author's work and started reading their words. It's bizarre, but those are some of the key things. And I would say that for a writer, for me, the hardest thing, and this is kind of going back to what I was saying before I made those points, the two hardest things for me are finding out what you want to write about next and starting. Those are the hardest for me. I agree. And, and good advice. You know, there's so many subjects out there, and I have a hard time narrowing it down. So, yeah. And I, I wouldn't have thought to pick up another person's book and start writing to get unstuck. That's a great tip. It, it really is. It has worked for me. There's something, I don't know what it is, but I, if I'm struggling with words, like, you know, we'll get down into the weeds here for a second. If I'm struggling to find the right words, I know what I want to convey in my head, but I can't get the words on the page the way I want them. To have some meaning, to have a fresh sort of organization to them, mm -hmm. because, you know, there's a finite number of words in our vocabulary. Right. And we have to, as writers, this is, again, also one of the hardest things, we have to figure out new ways to say it to make an impact on a read, an impact to readers. And for me, I can I don't understand this. It's got to deal maybe with the electrical workings of our brain. I have no idea. <laughs> but all I know is that I can pick up a book when I'm struggling with a sentence, words, whatever, and I can just sit back and start reading their work and. Something will unlock. I, I, again, I've said this probably three times already. I, I don't know why that works for me, but it does. And it has given me a, a, a time, you know, or a period where I feel like I'm never going to get the right words here. And I don't, and, I, and I'm stubborn about moving on. Yeah, just move on and come back to it. I can't. Because if I do, well, I will probably forget for one thing. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like, yep. what was it? I was, where, what page was that on? Um, but the other thing is, uh, I just, that's just the way I am. I write the same way. I edit as I go along. I, you know, a lot of readers will just pump it out, pump it out, pump it out until, you know, they've got typos everywhere. They've got their, you know, depending on what, uh, software they're using. I just use plain old Microsoft Word because that's what a lot of, um, you know, what the publishers want to see anyway, just standard Microsoft Word, 12-point right. font, you know. Um, anyway, and so I, but I can't do that. If I see those red lines, you know, that mean I've misspelled a word, I have to go back and fix it. Right. So I'm constantly editing so that when I turn in a manuscript, it's pretty clean, but um, at any rate, you know, when it when it comes to the process, it, it's it, I'm nitpicky like that, and I, the same thing with the sentences. I I just can't move ahead until I get the right words down. I think that's a really really good tip too, and um, I, I'm that way myself. When I sit down to write, I I watch a movie called The Magic of Bell Island, which sounds really stupid. But it's a kid's movie. Morgan Freeman is in it. And the vocabulary in this movie, he's an author. 
and the words and the, the phrases and the way they make you feel inspires me mm-hmm. so deeply and so when I'm when, oh, wow. when I need to write I watch that movie and then I can write for days <laughs> that's amazing well see that it's whatever works right? right and oftentimes I mean movies do help movies help because one of my favorite movies of all time is the Shawshank Redemption yeah and and I'm actually writing um I am writing uh, my seventh book right now and that's the book or excuse me that's the the movie that I'm thinking about of course it came from a book but that's the movie I'm thinking about and I have a writer friend that I talk with once a week and she and I have agreed number one for one of the major scenes and I have literally just started writing this so I'm nowhere near the ending or whatever but I want this particular character that I I have created to have what I call a Shawshank Redemption moment. And she also had, um, she had come up with one of her favorite movies is Sharp Objects. And that's, of course, based on the book by Gillian Flynn. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she said to me, and this is a similar bit of advice, like having your Shawshank Redemption moment, well, you can have that, she said, but it needs to be earned. And that was something that Gillian Flynn, in some interview that this writer friend of mine was watching, had said, you know, if you're going to have a big moment, like a big reveal, a big surprise in the book, in your story, it needs to have earned, you know, the character needs to have earned that moment. And what that means essentially is it can't be contrived. Right. It can't be a coincidence. Right. It can't be, oh, you know, well, wait a minute. I thought such and such happened earlier. That doesn't make sense. It, it, and that's what it means to have a moment like that earned. Right. And I just love that. You know, I, I thought, love that oh, that's good advice. You know, definitely so. Yeah, definitely so. So tell everybody. This is probably. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say this is probably why I don't write suspense and thrillers. My brain doesn't work that way. I can't. I am so impressed with, like a writer like Gillian Flynn that has something happening in a particular book, you know, Sharp Objects, for instance. Uh-huh. And, and and there's this big reveal at the end that is right in front of the reader just about the whole time. And I don't know if you know the scene that I'm talking about, and quite honestly, I'd have to go back and either read the book or, but, but my writer friend sort of explained it to me. She said, it has to do with the dollhouse, and it has to do with the teeth. Huh. And it gave away, there was something going on in the dollhouse that dealt, and of course, you know, Sharp Objects has got some very, um, what do I want to call it, unusual or um, I don't know if it's magical realism or stretch. You know, you got to kind of suspend belief and stretch your imagination a little bit to accept what is being shown to you in this particular scene. Um, But it's right there. The dollhouse is something that is 
tinkered with, if I remember this correctly, off and on throughout the movie, and it's kind of a central part of the movie. But you don't really pay that much attention to it. Right. Until there's that big reveal. I love it. <laughs> and it's like scene. staring you in the face. Yes. It's almost slaps you in the face. And I was, so this is what, you know, her advice was, Jillian Flynn, you have to earn that reveal. I love that. I really do. Yeah. Well, I do too. Tell everybody where we can pick up copies of your books and any kind of events that you have in the area locally that's going to be coming up. Okay. Um, well, my events are kind not. I don't want to say done because stuff keeps trickling in. Like I've got the book club event this afternoon, but of course that is um, a, a private event. But if they go to www.donnaeverhart.com, I have my event schedule out there and I keep it updated. And it also has links to where you can buy the books, and you can buy the books wherever books are sold, meaning independent bookstores, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon.com, you know, in, anywhere books are sold. So they're available. They're out there. Um, I don't know if, if because you're, um, this podcast, I think, may serve some of the local areas close around to where I live and where you live, um, but one store here in Dunn, it's uh, really a restaurant, Broad Street Deli, if individuals are familiar with going to eat there, and they have some very delicious food, I'll drop that in, um, she was carrying my books too, and I think she has sold out of the Saints of Swallow Hill, but I believe she has got some backlist books like The Forgiving Kind and The Moonshiner's Daughter. I think she's still got those too. So if somebody just wants to drop in there and help support her with those um, books there, then that would be great. Absolutely. Thank you for the tip. I, I go to Dunn often, so I will drop in there. Maybe we can meet for lunch one day. Oh, that would be great. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. And as always, everybody listening, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Everybody has a story. Just let your mind drift away and find yours. I know it's out there. What are you waiting for? <laughs>